Let us turn now to the Lord in prayer. We do give you thanks, our God, for our great Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ, who purchased our redemption, who satisfied upon that cross the demands for justice, who exchanged to us that we gave to him our wicked sin, and he exchanged that for us, his robes of righteousness, so that we come before you as those who, not only who are forgiven of the past, but those who come before you now as saints who have been made holy by Jesus Christ. We come to you as your children in knowing that as our Father hears our prayers. Our Father, we must also confess that though we have had our sins forgiven, though we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, yet there is still that remnant of sin that is within us. And as with shame, we must confess before you that we, we have sinned yet again. We have not loved you with all of our heart and our soul and might and strength. Indeed, there have been many other things in this world that we have loved more, have embraced more, we have placed our trust in more. We confess this before you. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. There are those whom we continue to resent, hold bitterness against, have not forgiven for their offenses against us. There are those whom we have offended and taken advantage of, and we, we confess that before you. And all the more, we give you thanks for that redemption won for us through Jesus Christ. If it depended upon us living good enough lives, where would we be? If it depended upon us trying to uh, outweigh the bad things with the good things, what hope would we have? Our hope is in the work of Jesus Christ, who never sinned. And all that he did was that which was good, which was right, which was just. And so all rest upon him, and we give you thanks for that, our Lord. How can it be, our Father, that you would show us such love. We pray, our Father, for this world that is filled with such enmity and, and this lacking love itself. But we pray for the work of the gospel to go forth, that your Holy Spirit would send forth that gospel. Touch the hearts of people throughout this world. Touch people on the other side of the world and touch people who are next door to us. Touch all who do not know you. That you would open their ears to hear the gospel, to repent, turn to you. We pray for those who have left their own homes to go forth and do that. And we pray for fruit to come forth uh, from their labors. And we pray for your, your blessings upon their ministries. Our Father, we pray for our sister churches here in Lake Oconee. We pray for your gospel to be proclaimed clearly. We thank you for the ministries that go forth from those congregations. How many lives are being touched in this area because of their faithfulness to you? 
And we pray that our light would shine forth with them as we show forth the light of Jesus Christ. Our Father, we pray for our persecuted brethren, for those who must at times beware of their own lives, beware of their safety, because they profess faith in their Lord Jesus. So we pray for your protection over them, and we pray that in the midst of worshiping you before their enemies, that all the more, that they would show forth the love that is of Jesus Christ and show the peace of the gospel. Our Father, we pray for our own needs, for those who are suffering, whether it be through physical illness, chronic pain, be it through broken relationships, be it through worries for their family, for their children and grand and grandchildren. Be it those who have difficult decisions to make and grant them that wisdom from your Holy Spirit. Our Father, we particularly lift before you our brother and sister and Bob and Ginger Blaylock and thank you. Thank you for the of the ministering, for the love that they have shown of Jesus Christ to this congregation, for the strength that they have been, of the wisdom that they have shown to support the encouragement, for the strong faith that they have modeled. And we pray that you go with them now as they go to a new home. We pray for protection of them in their travels, uh, for all that needs to be done in preparation just in the next few days. And pray for your great blessing upon them in their new uh, location and trust that you will continue to use them to be a blessing uh, to their new uh, congregation. And so now, our Father, we lift ourselves before you. We've come here in obedience to you as your people to offer to you worship. And in the midst of that, we look to you to feed us. Feed us particularly with your word. Give us the ears to hear. Give us the the humble hearts to allow ourselves to be examined by your word so that we go forth in the hope of the gospel and ever more strengthened and equipped uh, to serve you as your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, for our scripture this morning, it is in Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Now, if you're using the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 743. You'll also find the text uh, as well uh, as an insert if you want to take notes on that sheet of paper. But Luke 19, beginning with verse 1. Let us hear the word of God. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. 
He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Well, this is a time of the year. This is a very appropriate passage, this time of the year, isn't it? We're thinking about taxes. And thinking about the Internal Revenue Service, some people refer to it as the Infernal Revenue Service. And whatever your views may be about taxes in this country and about our government agency, I want to assure you that the whole tax collecting process back in Jesus' day was held in far greater disdain. And its agents were vilified. And all the more reason then why the crowd would have been surprised to see Jesus choosing a tax collector to honor with a visit to his house. So let's go through this text together. Again, he entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, Jesus is on the last leg of his journey to Jerusalem. He has traveled down from Galilee. He's been going along pretty much close to the, to the Jordan River. And he's come down now where Jericho is, And now he's going to turn to to head. He's 14 miles from the city. And he's got 3,500 feet to climb up to Jerusalem. You always hear people, no matter what direction they're coming from, they're going up to Jerusalem. They're literally going up uh, to that mountain. Now, he and his disciples would not have been alone at this time. If not already before, by the time they got to Jericho, they would have been joined with thousands of pilgrims heading to Jerusalem for the Passover. So this, this town of Jericho would have been mobbed at this time. So with that in mind, let's continue in verse 2. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now Zacchaeus was rich because he was the chief tax collector. Here's how the Roman tax system worked, Okay. It was a franchise business. Zacchaeus would have bid for the Jericho District franchise. And he must have offered the highest uh, price for it. Now, he would have been given a quota to raise in taxes. This is how much the government would have said to him they need to take in. And his commission then consisted of whatever he raised above that quota. You can see now how this system is ripe for corruption. And there are many taxes. There are transportation taxes. There are income taxes. There are poll taxes, meaning because you're a citizen, you, you pay something for that. There are land taxes. There are market taxes, and so on and so on. Now, the chief tax collector, what he would do is he would farm out the collection of all these different types of taxes to tax agents. Okay. Those tax agents would set up booths for this purpose. Okay. So uh, Matthew, you know, when you read of Jesus calling Matthew, it says Matthew was uh, at his booth collecting taxes. Okay. And Matthew himself must have done rather well. I mean, after he, Jesus called him to be a follower, he, he had a party 
for Jesus at his house and, and invited all of his, his fellow tax collectors and sinners to, to meet Jesus. Now, as we go through this, you, you entrepreneurs, you would not have a difficult time with you figuring out how Zacchaeus is going to make good money off of this business. It's not a highly regulated industry. The government just wants its quota and will provide for you the military support necessary to collect, your, to collect those taxes. So if you're doing it really well, too, you, you make some backdoor deals with the rich, and then you squeeze as much as you can out of the common and the poor folks, and you have a nice money-making operation going. Now, the negative is everybody hates you. Okay. They hate you for taking, advantage of, for taking advantage of them. You're hated for being an agent of Rome, who is the foreign occupier. That makes you a traitor of your own people. You're looked down for being an agent of Gentiles. Gentiles are unclean people. Okay. Just take away that they're occupiers. You're associating with Gentiles. Really, the only ones whom you can count as friends are your fellow tax collectors, the, the corrupt officials, the other immoral people in the community. And that's if you mean by friends, somebody who will actually be publicly associated with you. But again, the money is, is good. Now, besides being the rich owner of a corrupt business that swindled the populace, now, Zacchaeus distinguished something else here. He is, he is short. Now, let, let me just make a comment here, by the way. Whenever you hear references about tall people, who are they? Goliath gets knocked down. Saul, the first king who's deposed. It's the short people who usually end up looking good in the Bible. I just want to note that. All right, well, let's continue on. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. Now again, you have this in your imagery here. The the city is filled with pilgrims heading to Jerusalem. And Jesus' appearance creates a a particular excitement. Here comes that miracle worker that everyone has been talking about. Okay, so he wants to see who Jesus is, not being able to look over the crowd. He's a good thinker. He thinks ahead. He climbs up into that tree to see the celebrity. And what happens next is the unexpected. Verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And there are three three parties here in this description here of what's going on. There's there's Jesus, there's Zacchaeus, and then there's the crowd. Let's look at all of them for a moment. First of all, there's Jesus. And he's the one who initiates the interaction here. Now, what I want you to notice the urgency in the way that he speaks, okay? He doesn't merely ask Zacchaeus to come down. He, he commands him to come down immediately. Hurry up. 
There's no introduction. There's no inquiry. Just, just hurry and come down. And then he says this about himself. I must stay at your house today. Okay? doesn't say I would like to stay. I, I must. Maybe in the other translation he might say it is necessary. He's got to do this. Okay? Now, he's not really saying something like, you know, boy, I'm really tired. I, I must stop. I've got to take a break. That must is, is that Jesus is compelled to stay at Zacchaeus' house. And he doesn't use this term lightly. Let me give you other instances of it in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 4, 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. In chapter 9, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and, and be killed. And on the third day be raised. Chapter 13, verse 33. I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And the point here is that when Jesus speaks of what he he must do, he's always thinking in terms of fulfilling a mission that he has been sent to do. And so when he uses that word here, when he tells Zacchaeus that he must go to his house, he is himself responding to a command to fulfill his own mission. What seems coincidental, oh, there's, there's Zacchaeus up in a tree, and so he stops and speaks to him. It is purposeful. It is important to Jesus' mission. All right, now let's turn to Zacchaeus. He is delighted. He just drops out of that tree quickly. But most noticeably, he responds with joy. Okay? I mean, in all of the crowd, Jesus has stopped and spoken to him. And not just talked to him, he's chosen to come to his home. That's the greatest respect that you can show to someone. This is beyond his wildest expectations. And this joy, it... It's just simple happiness, okay? There's no trace here of pride or superiority or feeling justified. He's just, he's just so happy to have such a worthy guest. Here is a man of God coming into his home. It's the last thing that he would have expected given who he was. And that's where the crowd would have agreed with him. For it was the last thing that the crowd would have expected for the same reason, and with a less than joyful reaction. And they had good reason to be shocked. Now again, Zacchaeus is not a mere sinner. Okay? He's not just the kind whose morals are a bit loose, you know, and, and maybe the people are being a little uppity and self-righteous, you know, because he doesn't come to church or, or whatever. No, Zacchaeus is an oppressor. He takes advantage of the poor. The very people whom Jesus champions, you know, whom Jesus encourages generosity toward. And now they hear Jesus saying to their oppressor that he's going to be his guest. He doesn't rebuke Zacchaeus. He doesn't even indicate that he has any other purpose 
then he's just going to come and enjoy Zacchaeus' hospitality. He seems to be oblivious to the scandal that he is causing. Well, they go to the house. And then something happens. We don't know what Jesus says. We don't know what was done inside that house. All we know is the result in verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. True repentance takes place. This is it. I mean, you look at what Zacchaeus commits to do. First of all, he's going to give half of his possessions to the poor. I mean, tithing is just 10%. And and I imagine here that he's speaking here of the half is on top of that 10% of his tithing. Then, and this is where we're getting to the true act of repentance, he will make restitution to those whom he has defrauded. Uh, All those whom he has swindled through his tax collecting business, they just come forward and he's going to pay them. And here's what he's going to do. The law calls for a return of the money and then you're, you're to pay another 20%, one-fifth. Zacchaeus upset figure to another 300%. Okay? This is no, gee, I'm sorry for what I've done in the past and I will, I will try to be better type of repentance. Okay? He's not asking Jesus, well, what, what do I have to do? You know, remember the, that other rich young ruler? You know, what, what I have to do? What's kind of the minimum I can get by with? No, he is joyfully reporting what he is going to do. Something significant happened in that house. Now, Jesus then gives a concluding commentary of what has taken place here in verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So yes, Jesus is saying, look, Jesus did come to a wicked sinner's house. And he brought with him salvation. Okay. And what he's pointing out here to the crowd is that Zacchaeus, as bad as he was, he nevertheless is a son of Abraham. And it seems that what he's saying here is that he's defending why he came to Zacchaeus' house. Why he brought salvation. As bad as Zacchaeus was, he nevertheless was a fellow Jew. He was a member of God's covenant people. And this is his mission. It is to seek and to save the lost. Jesus found lost Zacchaeus. That's why he stopped on his journey. That's why he had to go to Zacchaeus' house. That's the explanation for this must. And Jesus' self-invitation to Zacchaeus' home. I must go to your house because I must bring you salvation. So we see what Jesus considers a must. It is the salvation of the lost. It's obviously, it's the must of God the Father. You just think about it. You do not send your son to die for the salvation of the lost If it's simply kind of an extra interest of yours, it is a focus. It is what really matters to God. 
And so the question for us is, what about us? What about us as individuals and and as a church? Do we feel that we must seek and save the lost? Or is it a side interest? You know, it's something, yeah, we, you know, certainly we we should care about it. You know, I mean, it's always important to, to think about that type of stuff. But it's not really what we are about. You know, there, maybe there are other things that have our attention. Or maybe we do affirm it. Of course. Of course we are to seek and to save the laws. And even so, there's a limit for whom we will show a concern for their salvation. Now, here's what I mean. I mean, I know after all, look, you do care about the, the salvation of the laws, Okay. We have specific people that we pray for. All, everyone here does, okay? We, we have, there are people that we love, their family members, their friends, acquaintances, anyone whom we have a measure of, of respect or, or some kind of affection for, we, we care for them. We also pray for the lost, even those whom we really don't know, but we, uh, we have missionaries and and we pray for the people that they are reaching out to. And, and we have friends who have told us about their loved ones. And we'll pray for them. And, and any kind of group of people in, in general, we'll, we'll pray for them and, and desire for their salvation. But see, what our, our text here is challenging us with, what Jesus is challenging us with, is do we care for the salvation of our enemies? For those whom we are, are just repelled by. They may not be our enemies, but we just can't. Whenever we think about them, we just, you know, we just can't think of them with good feelings. Again, the people here who are grumbling about Jesus going to Zacchaeus' house. Okay, these were not the Pharisees. They're not being self-righteous. They're just regular folks like us. Okay? And they liked Jesus. They believed he was a prophet from God. They, they were not looking to find fault. But, but this, this favor shown to an ungodly man, to a wicked man, that was just too much. I mean, why seek him out of all the people? Okay? Why not seek out the, the many more who were there who were being oppressed by Zacchaeus and others of his ilk. I mean, were there not enough poor, suffering people that you have to seek to to save, that you have to single out this man who was made rich on the backs of the poor? Why him? Okay? And do we have that same kind of attitude? Is there someone who... When you think of him or her, I mean, you know, that person comes to your mind and it, it just riles you to think of them. You, you just can't think of them without getting upset. It might be someone you know personally. It might be someone who's, who's distant. But, or there might be a group of people. You know, it just gets you disturbed every time they come to your mind. I mean, they're lazy. They're immoral. They're violent. See, that's how the crowd was feeling about Zacchaeus. And, and with good cause, that's why they were thinking about him that way. But again, in the light of our text and the example of Jesus, what we're being asked is this. Should we, would we, seek the salvation of such persons? 
Will we pray for them? Will we consider ways to befriend them? Will we risk the disapproval of good people in doing good for such types of people? Would we risk being misunderstood as Jesus was misunderstood? As a church, should we? Would we seek the salvation of such persons who despise our faith? Who would close our doors if they could? And the times are such that threats might come someday. Would we then feel that we must still seek their salvation? Would we still seek ways to win them to Christ? Now, I have a friend. I have a very good friend who's a good, who's a good man. Okay. If you met him, you know, he's just delightful. He loves the Lord. And I remember him telling me once that uh, he had what one desire in his old age, and that is to win others to Jesus Christ. I mean, what else is more important? Well, he asked for my email, and I get emails from him regularly now. They're, they're always forwarded emails. Some of them are humorous stories and jokes. Most of them are political. Most of them are disrespectful of those who don't follow his line of thinking. Now, he's not a hypocrite, but I'd say this. He's distracted. I know him. I know he wants to win the loss, but it is too easy to let what bothers us in the world take up all of our, our mind, our attention. And we think that is what is of greater importance than the concerns of the kingdom of God. The concerns of God's kingdom is the salvation of the lost. Anyone who is lost, whether we like them or don't like them. You know, when I was thinking about this, you know, the, the, the problem here, I think what trips us up, I, and, and by the way, when, when I speak most ardently about anything, you can be resting assured I'm speaking to myself. Again. But I think the, what, what gets us here is this uh, trying to save those who are just wicked people. And by wicked, I mean, I, I, you know, I know the right theology. All of us are wicked. You know, all of us have our hearts are, you know, are bad. We have, if we have unregenerate hearts. But I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about murderers, swindlers, thieves, people who are just mean. See, Zacchaeus was in truth, he was a swindler. He took advantage of others for his own profit. And so again, we desire the salvation of good people. Usually we mean by that people who are nice to us. But what of these wicked people? Doesn't God prefer that we, we ask that they get the justice coming to them? Isn't that really what God wants for those wicked people? Well, God gives his answer, actually. In Ezekiel 18.23, he says this, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. God desires justice, and he will have justice. The wicked who do not repent will receive righteous judgment. But here God is expressing his heart. He loves for the wicked to repent and so to be saved. He is glorified, 
He's glorified in the judgment of the wicked, but he is even more glorified in their salvation that he carries out. It's the cross. You look to the cross to behold the glory and the heart of God. Judgment comes down there on the cross on wickedness, on the wicked sins that Jesus Christ, our Savior, bore for us. We who are wicked. All of us. We have to understand this. We are the thieves beside Jesus. We are the hypocrites. We are the self-righteous Pharisees. We are the murderers. We are the adulterers, the rebels, the immoral. We are Zacchaeus. We are the grumbling, resentful crowd. But God desired that we turn from our own way and turn to Jesus and live. Praise God. See, we've got to grasp this. We have to grasp the wickedness that is within us. Not so we keep feeling bad, but so that we ourselves will have the same desire for the salvation of the outwardly wicked. We've got to be able to say when we see the wicked, there go I. That wicked person is showing outwardly what has been wrong in me inwardly without Jesus Christ. And even with Christ, we have to still confess the many times that we, again, are sinners. Now, one might still respond to this, saying, okay, this is, this is all good. Okay. It is good for the wicked to repent and turn to God. I would love I would love to see that happen. I'd love to see my enemies, all the bad people, uh, turn to God and, and become good. Now, if I knew that my efforts would produce such results, well, then maybe I'd be a little bit more ardent in befriending them. But I tell you, there are certain persons that are not going to change. And I know that they will only take advantage of me. Well, listen to what Jesus has to say to even this kind of thinking, which, by the way, in those words might very well be accurate. They might never, ever change. But Jesus said this in Luke 6. It's verses 27 to 36. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who, um, I'm sorry, who takes from you, who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. 
and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is, un, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now, what is striking about this teaching is that Jesus is prescribing this very difficult behavior that we're to have, that all of his followers are to have, towards the wicked, irregardless of the wicked's response. Okay? He doesn't say, now look, if you do this and you be nice and good, they will repent. Okay? He doesn't say that. He presents this behavior for one reason only. He says, that is what our Father is like. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. What he's saying is that to be identified with Christ, to be true sons of the Most High, we're to love our enemies. We're to do good to them. We're to lend without expecting anything in return. Now, I don't know about you, to me, this is a hard saying. And it seems all but impossible. But it is the distinctive of the Christian faith. That's what separates us from everyone else. It's at the core of the gospel. And the ability to live it out, that is what first caused the church of Christ to grow. I mean, it grew in very hostile setting. And it's what still causes the church to grow throughout this world. For throughout the years, the reason, the primary reason that the wicked have ever had the humility to receive the gospel, it's because someone won them with love and with forgiveness. It is because the followers of Christ loved their enemies, that many of the enemies then became brothers and sisters in Christ. It is because Christ's followers exchanged kindness for the enmity shown to them by the wicked that those same wicked became the sons and daughters of Abraham belonging to the people of God. Now when you think about it, that's the gospel, isn't it? Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his Son to seek us, we who were wicked, to save us, who were wicked. And by his great act of of kindness and, and mercy, he has made us his people. You might say it this way, through the incarnation, he came to our house and he brought to us salvation and he made us sons and daughters of Abraham. And so he would leave with us this question, whose salvation will we seek? Whose house? will we enter to demonstrate such gospel love? Let's pray. We thank you, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, whom you sent on this mission 
to seek out and to save the lost, however wicked they may be, and that you would include even us. May we have that same heart as our Lord Jesus Christ. May we feel compelled to seek, to save the lost. May we have stirred within us the same love that stirred within you uh, to, to love those who, who mistreat us, to love those who are wicked, who, who are evil, so that they too may come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they may repent, that they may live as well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.